again. Uh, so I'm really excited this morning that we have uh, Pastor Krista Shaver here. Uh, so she's, I don't know, you like unofficially my mentor, we're one of many. Uh, so she oversees the DBMD, there's too many letters in that for me. Uh, but it, so it's, it's like the, the department of our district that oversees the ministerial students, of which I am. Uh, so it's like the, the training program for like helping people like me become full-fledged ordained ministers. So Krista like oversees that. Uh, so we've had a few conversations over the last mm -hmm. couple of years uh, just about that in ministry and, and like Krista just seems so caring and kind mm -hmm. and I don't know, like whenever I talk to you, it just seems like you, you just recently spent time with God and mm. in his presence. Uh, so that, that makes me excited for today's sermon because then I assume that, that we're about to get some of that you're coming out of the presence of God and then, and then sharing that with us. So I'm really mm. excited to hear what you have today. Hopefully all that doesn't make me nervous. <laughs> it's gonna be, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be good uh, mm. that God put something on your heart. Uh, so why don't you come up, and Thank I will you. pray for you, Thank and then you. you can show us what God is showing you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, so God, uh, I just thank you for Krista and just her willingness to be here this morning with us while Dan is away, uh, and I pray that you would just speak through her this morning, that, that I know that you've already given her a message and you put words on her heart so that uh, even in this time that you would prepare our minds and our hearts and our ears to to hear your word through her. So I just thank you for what you've given her, and I pray that you just give her everything she needs to deliver that to us. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Nathan. Well, good morning. Good morning. Are you there? Yeah. Good morning. It is really a joy. It's really a joy to uh, be here with you today and with those who are joining us online. Uh, many thanks to Pastor Dan for this invitation. Uh, it's really always a joy to get to explore God's Word with God's people. It's one of my favorite things to do, and I'm so delighted to be able to do that for a few moments with you here uh, today. I know, I think you've been in a mini-series this summer centering around the theme of foundations of faith, and Pastor Dan asked if I would um, fit in with that today, which I'm very happy to do and continue to build on. I hope what you've been doing is you talked about God as the architect and builder of faith, and Jesus as the author and perfecter of faith, and then last week, I think, in the chapter just before the one we're in today, um, my understanding is Pastor Nathan took you through faith in the face of opposition, and last week perhaps even in the face of many technical opposition, um, but uh, I, I hear it was a really wonderful word. Well, today, um, as we examine a little bit of Luke 14, which we'll go to in a few moments, but you could begin to find it now if you want, um, I want to talk about faith in the God who sees me. Faith in the God who sees me. We've been singing about that. He knows my name. He sees me. We're going to lean into that truth. And here's the big idea that I'm just going to give you up front, and then we'll develop it as we go along. The big idea is that having faith that God sees us inspires us to live the life God calls us. So having faith that God sees us inspires us to live the life God calls us. I want to begin with uh, a story about an experience that I had recently. It's a great privilege to live two blocks 
uh, away from the shores of the St. Lawrence River. And I just love that because I, I love living in uh, and near the water. And I try to see the river every day, whether on a walk or a bike ride or a drive-by, and I sit by it as often as I can. It's very life-giving to me to be near the water. And recently, I was sitting alone in a quiet park right on the shores of the river. And as there often is, there was a great big ship passing by. So as you might imagine, as in all waterways, we get lots of boaters, but because we live on the St. Lawrence Seaway, we get lots of ocean-going vessels, big cargo vessels filled with shipping containers and all kinds of cargo, and there's always lots of this kind of traffic. And these ships are usually, have anybody seen those kind of ships even down to, to the St. Lawrence? And so you might know that these kind of ships, they're often navigated from the back with a control room way up high that you often can't see into. In fact, I often wonder, how can they see where they're going? Because <laughs> I can't really tell that there's a window that they're looking out of. Um, but as I sat there this day, this particular ship had a large control room in the center of the ship, way up high, of course, still, but in the center with a big um, windows all around. I think they call it the bridge. I think that's the official term for the command center of, the, of a ship. And so um, this whole command center encased in glass and really big and up high. And the ship was unusually large compared to the size of the ships we normally see. And as I looked up, I wondered if the people on the bridge could see me. And my instinct was to wave. Um, but I guess I lacked the abandon that I might have had as a child, and I didn't wave because I thought, they can't see me. There's no way they could see It would just be silly. It would be silly to wave. And in the split second after I decided not to wave, there came this ear-splitting horn, like just this really ear-splitting horn. And I looked up, and someone on the bridge of the, that ship was waving at me. And just me. And I, I know it was me because there was no one else on that shore. I was sitting in a kind of a solitary space. There was no other boats passing on the water that they had to alert to their presence. There was no other traffic anywhere around. There was no other reason for that horn to be blowing except to say hi to me. And the person that was way up there in the center who was waving at me was like really waving. Like I was their best friend, this long lost person, this that they like it wasn't just a, you know, really, really waving. And so of course I was compelled to wave back. And there we were, like I'm assuming smiling at each other, because I was grinning by this point. I couldn't see their face, but like really waving at each other until the ship passed by. And it was quite a moment of human connection. And as the ship passed by and my hand came down, I realized that there was great emotion stirring in me. In fact, I noticed that tears were welling up in me. And they kind of surprised me. And I asked myself, like, what's that all about? 
I live on the river. I wave to boaters and they at me all the time. It's just like what you do. Why do I feel like I'm about to cry? And as I paid attention to where the emotion was coming from, I noticed that I was moved by the power of being seen. By this great big ship passing by that I had deemed too big to notice me. That I had not been courageous enough to call myself to that ship's attention because I thought it would be silly. Not courageous enough to wave because I knew I would be overlooked. Someone on that ship, maybe it was even the captain, I don't know, saw me, waved to me, acknowledged me, and there was God tapping me on the shoulder saying, I see you, I see you. And I was reminded with that illustration again of how the great power there is in being seen. So just tuck that image away in your mind for a bit as we open to the text that's before us today. Um, as we follow the uh, lectionary text assigned for today, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 14. So you'll want to get that open um, in your paper or your digital Bible. It will also be on the screen. Luke chapter 14. And here we have Jesus eating dinner in the house of a very prominent, very important, powerful, wealthy, religious leader. And I'm just, so verse 1, let's read it. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. The people were watching him closely. The NIV says that he was being carefully watched. So what you need to know is that he was not being carefully watched because people were so interested and so engaged and were just like hanging on his every word. The word for watching here literally means interested and sinister espionage. <laughs> yeah. So. Just so you know off the top, this is not a casual or a friendly dinner party. Jesus was under scrutiny. He was under investigation. The people who invited him there were trying to trap him. They were trying to trap him. And aware of the scrutiny, but quite undeterred, Jesus does what he always did. He just did his thing. He went about healing and teaching. And verse 7 is where we're going to jump into the story. Reading from verse 7, when Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you were invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? Then the host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. 
Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I'm just going to pause there for a moment, and we'll, we'll jump back into the rest of the text in a minute. But let's just pause there and, and notice that at first glance, right, the most obvious read of this advice, even if you didn't do any background study in historical investigation, you could read that text and understand that this is a call to humility, right? This is a, this is a call to humility. Now, what, what is up with taking the front seat? I, I've been in the church my whole life, and it's my experience that when the doors open, the back seats fill up first. Look at you all. <laughs> Three quarters of the congregation is sitting in the back half of the building. You know, if you want a good seat, the back seat, you got to come early. Because those are the seats that fill up first, and if you find yourself coming later, you probably find yourself having to sit at the front, unless that was your choice in the beginning, which it is. Much to the chagrin of my family, as we visit around, I always head for near the front because I like to not be distracted by all the people sitting in front of me. They, as you can see, will choose the middle to back. Um, but in New Testament times, the closer you sit to the front of the room, and in this case at a dinner party, the closer that you sit to the host, to the head table, the higher up you are on the social standing. Um, and the more attention people will pay to you, the more invitations they will give you for future events. And so commentators tell us that in the first century, at, at gatherings like this, people rushed to the head table when the doors were opened because they wanted to be important. They wanted to, to, to either show how important they were or they wanted to kind of gain importance for future gatherings by demonstrating their social standing by being closest to the host. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you rush to the best table, you might, ask, you might be asked to move to the back of the room. Often, if you pay attention to what Jesus is saying, he's saying the best way is the opposite way. Verse 10, take the lowest place. Take the lowest place. Then your host might come along and say, hey, friend, we've got a better place for you. And it will ultimately be better because you grasp it for yourself. The Jesus is illustrating by the story, of course, he sums up in verse 11 when he says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. My, my, my translation or my retelling is simply this. When we grasp at honor, we end up demoted. But when we take the lowest place, we end up elevated. When we grasp at honor, we end up demoted. When we take the, the lowest place, we end up elevated. But as we continue through the story, we see that Jesus doesn't just have a lesson for guests. He's really warning the guests about false popularity. The host about false hospitality. 
And so we pick that up in verse 12. Then he turned to his host and he said, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back and that will be your only, only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. So remember, we're talking about this call to humility. And Jesus, of course, is not saying, don't have meals with your family and friends. He's not saying that. He is saying, at least in part, don't only have meals with your family and your friends with the people who you enjoy, with the people that you're comfortable with, who can reciprocate and have you over for a barbecue next time. In New Testament society, wealthy people entertained for two reasons. One, to pay someone back because they'd been invited to a past feast. Or secondly, to ensure that they would be invited to a future feast. By putting someone on the guest list, who would then be compelled to reciprocate and invite them to come over to their place, right? You understand how this works. In fact, if we're honest, we still see evidence of that even in how we operate today. It, much of our culture, even church fellowship culture, right, still operates the same way. I might rub you a little bit the wrong way here, and I'm sorry, but I'm talking to me too when I say that, like, we just tend to like to hang out with ourselves, right? Most of the time. I think it's generally true that, that church people hang out with, we hang out with our families, and we hang out with other church people. Most of the time. I don't know if you've ever followed the Chosen series, but it's fantastic and outstanding. I probably referenced it the last time I was here because I just really love it. And one of the taglines, I think it's from season three, but don't quote me on that, um, I think would sum up Jesus' point here very well, which is simply this, get used to different. Get used to different. In this case, he's saying, reach out to those who your life does not naturally intersect with. Extend hospitality to those who haven't done a thing for you in the past and are not in a position to ever do something for you in the future. Just do it because it's the right thing to do and because it's an extension of true love and true hospitality. My, my translation of that is this. When we give to get we get repaid. Like some of you give a Christmas gift to somebody, they might give you a Christmas gift back. Um, but when we give to give, just for the pure sake of giving, we get rewarded in eternal senses of the word. And Jesus unpacks that a lot in various other places of his teaching. When we give to get, we get repaid, but that's all you're ever going to get. But when we give to give we get rewarded. And Jesus, of course, is just using what was right in front of him to talk about a bigger thing, 
right? He's not really talking about dinner parties. He's talking about all of our human relationships, all of the ways that we interact with other human beings on this planet are to be marked with humility. And he spells that out in detail over the whole course of a lifetime of teaching as he says, put others before yourself. Consider others better than yourself. Put the needs and interests of others before your own. Submit to one another out of love, right? These are familiar themes that actually stretch through the whole book from one end to the other, repeated over and over. But I love that Jesus is addressing both the host and the guest here so that we can find ourselves in the story no matter who we are. He's illustrating for us that whatever situation of life you're in, whether you are on the giving or the receiving end of hospitality, whether you consider yourself to be a have or a have not, whether you are at the top or the bottom of a social structure, there is an opportunity for humility. In every station of life, in every circumstance, if we are answering Jesus, we are answering a call to live a humble life, a call to humility. That's the first and most obvious read of this text, and we could spend all morning just diving into that. But there's another read, another layer to the lesson, if we hear this text in the larger context of Jesus' life and teaching, we also understand that this is a call to an upside-down life. This is a call to an upside-down life. See, Jesus is teaching here with his words what he will soon demonstrate by his actions. As I read verse 10, instead take the lowest place. I was reminded of another meal at another table, one in which Jesus doesn't just talk about taking the lowest place. He demonstrates by example what that looks like. Come with me for, for a moment to John 13. John 13. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper. And Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he took so he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Now, if there was ever a reason 
for taking the best place at the table, it's this one. Did you notice verse 3? Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, that he came from God and was returning to God. So just meditate on that for a second. Jesus knows that he is the most powerful, the most important, the most significant person in the room. But the continuation of the sentence is not, Jesus knew that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he took the very best seat at the table. It is that Jesus knew he had come from God and was returning to God, what? So he got up from the table. And he got down on his knees. Jesus takes the very lowest place of all. Here he's not taking the place of the host, not the place of the guest, not even the place of the servant. If you do the deep dive in the words behind what we have here, Jesus takes the place of a slave. In an act of supreme humility, in an expression of selfless service, in a moment of showing what the NIV calls the full extent of his love, Jesus gets up from the table, he gets down on his knees, and he takes in his hands the stinky, dirty, uh, calloused feet of his disciples. The same disciples who have recently been arguing about who was the greatest one in the room. The same disciples who will very shortly betray him, deny him, desert him, down to the very last one. These are the feet that Jesus chooses to wash. And if we were to zip all the way down to verse, 14, verse 15 in that story, what we hear are these words of Jesus. I have given you an example to follow. I have given you an example to follow. In these twilight hours of his life on earth, Jesus demonstrates by example what he was teaching about all along. If we reflect on the way he was born, and certainly all the way to the way that he died, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God is about a call to an upside-down life. As you journey through the Gospels, you hear that teaching repeated over and over again. You see the picture of an upside-down life. What is it? Win by losing. Gain by giving. Lead by serving. Live by dying. The call to follow Jesus is a call to an upside-down life. A life that is not patterned after the values and the principles of the world, but is patterned after the values and the principles of the kingdom. To say it another way, the call to follow Jesus is a call to a cruciform life. In other words, a life shaped by the cross. A life where down 
is the way up. Jesus said of himself that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As followers of Jesus, we need to be asking ourselves, what does it look like for me to follow that example? To live a life that doesn't expect to be served, but that looks for opportunities to serve. In all of his actions, with all of his words, Jesus demonstrated what upside-down living looks like right to the very end, which became the beginning. Upside-down kingdom. Jesus' life inspired one of the first and greatest hymns of the church, and it was recorded in Philippians chapter 2, which Curtis opened the service with today. And as I, as I look back on those words again, how Jesus did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave was born as a human being, humbled himself in obedience to God. Just before that, we have these words, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. It's a call to humility. It's a call to self-forgetfulness and self-sacrifice. It's a call to an upside-down life. But how can we answer that call? When God has placed the need within every human heart to be seen, to be noticed, to be acknowledged, How can we follow the example of Jesus to take the lowest place? Well, first and foremost, it's not about you. It's about Christ in you. So let's just establish that. It's about Christ in you. The Holy Spirit filling you is the only thing that can shape this kind of life within you. But as we return to our text for today, we remember that there's there's this call to humility. There is this call to an upside-down life. And as we really pay attention and we peel off another layer, I think we discover there is also a call to faith. There's also a call to faith. And it's this call to faith, I think, that is the foundation on which the rest of it rests. Because we don't live the Christ-following life unless we have answered that call to faith, which has many dimensions. But today we're focusing on one. And it's found in verse 10. In verse 10, we have the call to take the lowest place, remember? And it's closely followed by the words, when your host sees you. When your host sees you. As I read those words, I I was reminded of the power of being seen of the emotion that swelled in my heart as this great big ship passed by and noticed me, acknowledged me, celebrated by the horn and this 
ridiculously exuberant waving from this stranger that I did not know. Small and insignificant as I was compared to this great ship that was passing by. I'm also reminded of a slave, a slave girl named Hagar. Now her story is recorded in Genesis 16. It's not on the screen. But if you want to turn there or just make note of it and read her story in full later, it would be, uh, I would encourage you to do so. But just in quick summary, Hagar was used. She was abused. She was mistreated. She was driven away from the only home she had, and she expected to die in the wilderness alone, impoverished, pregnant, unseen. But God finds her. God calls her by name. God gives her a promise. God sends her back to her circumstances. He sends her back to take the lowest place again. And remarkably, Hagar goes. But she goes back changed because she had an encounter with the God who knew her past, who pinpointed her exact location in the present, and who saw what the future held for her. And the word therefore records in verse 13, thereafter Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord, to refer to Yahweh, who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well named the well of the one who sees me. Which might sound awkward to us in English, but the, the name that Hagar gives to God is El-Ra'i, the God who sees me. And so that's what they named the well after. It is interesting to note this is the only time this name for God is used in the Bible only time God is called El-Ra'i. And sometimes when something shows up only once, I think it's designed by the divine author so it will stand out to us, so that we will sit up and pay attention. And though this is the only time this name for God appears in the Bible, this truth about God is repeated over and over and over again. And we could spend, like I could put dozens of references up on the screen for you about referencing the, this God who sees us. I want to tell you the truth, loved ones. We serve a God who sees us. Not one millisecond of your life escapes his notice and his attention. And he does not just see you as a detached observer who's just kind of remote and looking on with a long tele, like far away. The God who has his eyes upon you has your life in his hands. We said at the beginning that 
Having faith that God sees us inspires us to live the life God calls us. Having faith that God sees us. Which brings us back to, to um, and you don't have to go back there on the, on the screen, but which brings us back to uh, the first verse of, of this passage we're studying, verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1, where remember we said Jesus is being carefully watched? People were seeing him. He was under a microscope. He was under scrutiny. The whole meal is designed as a trap. But Jesus knew that he was being carefully watched by his audience of one. Jesus lived his whole life with the knowledge that his audience of one, God the Father, were the only eyes that really mattered. It's so profound then in that John 13 passage that we considered that Jesus could take the lowest place. Why? Because he knew he had come from God and was returning to God. That's the lead up to Jesus getting down on his knees is his remembering of who he is, where he came from, what he was on the planet to do, and where he was going. And let me tell you the truth, loved ones, that is the key to our living the Christ-following life as well. You see, Jesus didn't have his eyes on the spies. <laughs> he didn't have his eyes on the people who were watching him closely with sinister espionage in their hearts. Jesus had his eyes on the Father. Jesus had his eyes on his identity and on his destiny. His eyes were on his mission and his destination, therefore, he was able to take the lowest place. Because his job was not to exalt himself, it was to humble himself and leave the rest to God. And the only way that we can take the lowest place with the in the right way and with the right motivation, because if we're doing it because we know what we're going to get out of it, we're, we've already gone wrong. But the only way that we can take the lowest place in the right way and with the right motivation is if we, too, by faith, keep our eyes on the Father. If we, too, by faith, keep our eyes on the One who has his eyes on us. If we trust that he sees us, if we trust that he sees us, I know that sometimes other people, even God himself, uh, can feel too big too busy, too far removed to notice you. Like me on the shores of the St. Lawrence, right? So small and insignificant compared to the great ship that was passing by. They can sometimes feel that way. Can feel that way in our relationship to God. It can feel that way as we operate within the church and within the world, like that there's just too much going on that nobody really sees, nobody really knows. 
And if we're not careful, we can allow roots of, of bitterness or resentment or pride to grow in our hearts because it's hard to do the humble thing. It's, it's hard to do the invisible thing, the menial thing, the thankless thing. It can be hard. Living with humility, living an upside-down life, living across life is not glamorous. It's not easy. In the eyes of the world, it is not important. It's not powerful. But in the eyes of the one who sees you, the servant is the highest of all. As we hear this call to humility, as we hear this call to an upside-down life, let us also hear this call to faith, which I think is buried here in these verses that we considered. And it's not up on the screen, but just make note of it and reflect on it later. God will see you, verse 10. God will honor you, verse 11. God will reward you. Verse 14. Let me tell you the truth, loved ones. Those are promises. It's a principle Jesus is is illustrating here, but it's promises repeated over and over in the book. God sees you. God will honor you. God will reward you. And so I want to invite you to consider, as you hear those stories today, the story of Jesus at the banquet, the story of Jesus with his disciples washing their feet, the story of Hagar in the wilderness, where does God want you to find yourself in those stories today? What does God want you to do in response to what you're hearing today in what ways do you need to answer the call to humility when you're honest with yourself when it's just you looking in the mirror where are the places where some pride is showing up in your life where do you need to answer the call to take the lowest place or to turn, allow something to be turned upside down so you can live more of a cruciform life, a kingdom life of upside down. Let me tell you the truth, loved ones. Every time you give someone your place in the line at the grocery store, every time you park at the spot, if, you're, if you have the mobility to do so, every time you park the furthest away, in the church parking lot so someone else can park closer. Every time you do a menial task that you know needs to be done and you do it without being asked and without being thanked and without needing to be noticed, every time you just give to give with no thought of what you will get out of it, Every time you open your home or your heart to someone who is far outside your comfort zone or your social circle. 
every time you choose others over self, every time you post something online that is there to encourage someone else not to, make, not to present yourself in the best light, every time you take the lowest place, God sees you. God will honor you. God will reward you. Having faith that God sees us, remember God sees us, inspires us to live the life God calls us. And let me tell you the truth. Life God calls us to is the highest honor of all.